This is England, or to be more precise, Sherwood Forest, at least Q's recreation of it. That would explain these costumes. Quite right, number one. Or should I say, John Little. Well, if he's Little John, that makes you... I know. Robin Hood. Sir, I protest. I am not a merry man. Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 56 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and sometimes it's not a matter of finding a guest to fit a topic I want to cover, but rather of the potential guest's obsessions suggesting the topic. That's why I'm going to ask Alan W. Wright to Gimme That Robin Hood. Alan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Cisco. It's good to be here. Yeah, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that you're the biggest Robin Hood fan I know. Probably not. I mean... Well, you don't know who I know, but yeah, <laughs> you're probably the biggest Robin Hood fan many people will know after this. I, w- I would say that that is very true. Um, I've been involved in... Well, I've been a fan since, much like Star Trek, since before I can even remember. Some would say a scholar. Other scholars say scholar, so I won't argue. I would say, like Picard, a uh, enthusiastic amateur, maybe. That's what geeks are. You know, we're, we know a lot of stuff, but would we call ourselves experts? Would we claim a professorship at a university to teach this? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Would we speak at a conference full of experts? In that case, I have done that. Okay. So, so there you go. Uh, at least Picard, at least Picard level. Yeah, and since Star Trek TNG has a Robin Hood-centric episode, that's what we've been aiming for here, Cupid, I think we have something we can discuss, but before we go any further, since this is your first time on the show, you get to answer the short questionnaire that demonstrates the kind of Star Trek fan you are. So, if you're ready, the first question is always, what does Star Trek mean to you? How did you become a fan? This is your origin story. As I said, I guess my origin story is I don't remember because I remember loving Star Trek since I was a kid. Since kindergarten, I remember dressing up as Spock one year for Halloween. So, I, you know, I've always been into it uh, just because it was fun. It was enjoyable. And, and in the 70s, syndication, the original series, when it really, I think, took off and became the cultural phenomenon it was and it seems to me it wasn't as much a geek thing i mean i guess because i am a geek and and a lot of my friends were but star trek was just something you watched back in the 70s and you know i've stuck with it more or less through its various incarnations it was a family experience back then your tv was on that channel i think that my parents didn't watch tv as much so it tended to often be on the channel i wanted on so that's a good so what is your favorite iteration of the show i think for nostalgia it has to be classic trek the the original series just 
because that's the one I grew up with having marathons of, oh, they have three episodes on tonight or six episodes in the days before DVD sets and streaming. Uh, binge watching is when Channel 29 in Buffalo would put three to six episodes on. Right. And is your favorite character from that that iteration? Uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll say my second favorite is DS9 of the 20th century tracks. It's the original than DS9. And yeah, my favorite characters would be Spock and McCoy and the banter between them, the intellect and the emotion. And I think they just play off each other really, really well, even into the movies, like that classic line about, so this is his revenge for all those arguments <laughs> he lost. So what is your favorite alien race or culture in the Trek universe? We skip ahead of it because I will say a tie between the Bajorans and the Cardassians. I think the advantage of sticking around for seven seasons and not traveling all that much, you really got to see the politics of both of those races and the their interrelations with each other, the religion of the Bajorans, I thought, explored things in more detail than Star Trek has before and really has since. So you've well represented your two favorite iterations. Now, Robin Hood, I guess same question. What's your favorite alien culture from Robin Hood? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, if Robin Hood was a, you know, foundational for you, but you don't, is it the same? You can't remember? I can't remember. Um, I remember things like at the beginnings of my memory. So the Rocket Robin Hood cartoon sure. from the 60s for Americans, it's probably something you might have seen at a convention at the worst cartoons ever made. But for Canadians of my generation, it was just rerun constantly because it was animated and voiced in Canada. Ah. And the Errol Flynn movie, I think I saw it when I was eight and loved it when I was eight. Some children's books I had, a play. So I, I was always sort of into it. And then later on in high school, we were doing independent study. And I thought, you know, I've always liked Robin Hood. Um, where did this legend come from? And I got into the university library and found out where it came from and how it evolved over time. And that fascinated me that legends change and grow and, you know, borrow from themselves and from other things. And that whole element really kicked it up a notch. And then I saw Robin of Sherwood, the 1980s TV series, right after I completed that and fell in love with that. And in the early days of the Internet, I want to, you know, have a link to a went back when Web pages were like Facebook accounts. I wanted to have a link to a Robin Hood site. And the only one I had seen was down. So I ended up saying this is wrong. This is an 800 year old legend or 700 year old legend. I want to create the website for people to come as a resource for the whole legend. So I ended up doing that. And now you're a bold outlaw on, on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and that's a reference to that. It would start on GeoCities. Uh, it's now boldoutlaw.com, though, and has been. I'd started in 97. It, I guess it moved to its own URL in 2003. And uh, it's been going. And Robin Hood is called the bold outlaw in some of the ballads, like the ballad of Robin Hood and Alan Adale. He's called that. So it just it just seems right for the uh, the kind of attitude that Robin Hood has, though some may say not always the attitude Picard has. Yeah, well, that's what we're going to try to do here is that, uh, you know, did Cupid farewell as a Robin Hood pastiche. You know, we'll look at each of the characters and the events that are depicted. And trust me, folks, 
<laughs> I've been in conversation with Alan for a while about this, and uh, he's been sending me, you know, screenshots of other movies and TV shows and, and things. And it's like, there are some interesting references that the showmakers used and put in the show. Some might be accidental. Some seem very much on purpose. And, uh, and so we'll explore all of that. But let's remind the folks who might not have seen it in a while what this episode was about. It's the 20th episode of the fourth season. It first aired 22 April 1991. Teleplay by Deep Space Nine's future showrunner, Ira Stephen Bear. What? From a story by Bear and Randy Russell. That's Russell's only Star Trek credit. Directed by veteran director Cliff Bowl, after whom the Bolians were named. In short, Vash is back aboard ship as a sequel to Captain's Holiday, where she and Picard had a fling. Q shows up and detects the romantic tensions, not to say awkwardness, of the situation, and sends everyone into a world where Picard is Robin Hood, Vash is Maid Marian, the Enterprise crew are the Merry Men, and Q himself is the Sheriff of Nottingham. Once the scenario is resolved, everyone is back where they belong, but Vash decides to let Q show her the universe, and they'll be back from that trip in the first season of Deep Space Nine. Let's just start with a, a quick evaluation of the episode as an episode. I guess, was this something that caught your attention at the time? Do you like the episode? I like it more now than I did at the time, because when it came out, I was a little more serious on things, and... I, I think a lot of the Fire and Water Network listeners are into comics, so maybe they'll get this reference of I viewed the Errol Flynn Robin Hood in 1991, much like how Batman fans viewed the 1966 TV series in 1989. Kind of like, oh, that's a silly thing. You know, I'm into something more real and serious. Fortunately, I grew out of that attitude. So <laughs> I actually like it more now. I don't think it's... I, I mean, I don't think it's the best Robin Hood pastiche. I don't think it's the best episode of TNG. And my favorite Q episode is Tapestry, which I think thematically probably has a couple of things that might have worked better with Robin Hood mm -hmm. in a way. I agree with you. That I'll go right on the record and say I do not like Cupid very much, but that is because I don't like Vash at all. It's weird to think that Patrick Stewart and uh, Jennifer Hetrick were actually engaged at this point in their lives during this episode. They never made it down the aisle, but they, they were dating and they were engaged. So I'm not saying they don't have chemistry. I'm saying that the characters, I, I never saw these characters as a, uh, a potable couple. It just didn't make sense to me that Picard and Vash had anything remotely in common except archaeology. And even there, it's like he's all ethical and she's totally not. I don't see it. I don't like it. So bringing her back and then making this about that, ugh, not my not my favorite. And they don't even make about it because Tapestry, to go with the later episode, is how when Picard was young, he was a risk taker and bold and rebellious and a daredevil and started fights. And, and I think Q even says in that episode, a little more like him. And it, wait, like you could do that with Robin Hood, like the swashbuckling Robin Hood of, of say, Errol Flynn, which is, this is mostly a pastiche of. And Captain Picard do not mesh, really, but they don't really deal with the tensions of that as much as they could have or, or perhaps should have. And you, you can see the appeal of a Vosh maybe to Picard if she's what he secretly wants to have, maybe, or part of himself that's buried. Yeah. What they really pick up from the Robin Hood stories, I mean, there's that moment, right, where, where they're all trying to figure out what's going on, and Picard asks 
the crew, what's the most famous thing about Robin Hood? And then Jordy says, steals from the rich, gives to the poor. So aside from that. That's Q says, I love the fact that Q just can't accept the altruistic explanation. Yeah. Like that reason, which is a phrase which doesn't always happen in the ballads of him, Robin from the rich and giving to the poor. But the the phrase is certainly going back uh, hundreds of years. And that is still the most famous thing about Robin Hood. But Q being a selfish jerk doesn't see that. And what he comes up with is the rescue of Maid Marian from Nottingham Castle, which is... And, and to me, it's like, yes, as an umbrella event... But the, you know, the stuff that they're not doing here, like, what do I think of Robin Hood? First, yes, that line. And then, you know, the archery competition, splitting the arrow, and then meeting little John. That's a famous, the, the famous duel between the two. Those are the images that, that come to me first. The rescue of Maid Marian. I think this is part of the, um, the sort of origin story of this script because it's, it's more about the romance than about the, the rest of the adventure. It's more about that romance. And originally they thought of doing it as a, they thought of doing a Camelot story. You know, it makes sense in Camelot because you have much more, I think, at the center of it, you know, you have the king who is weighed down by the burdens of being a king, which I think matches Picard maybe a little more. And then you have a romantic rival, which could kind of work with Q a little more than, say, Q or Gisborne work in this one. And then Guinevere is pretty savvy and duplicitous in some versions of the Arthurian legend, which it's not hard to see a lot of versions of Guinevere making those kind of switches like that Vash does that or Vash does. I don't think Picard's consistent on how he says her name, but <laughs> yeah. Would, would you imagine that that script would have had Q as Lancelot or? Yeah. I mean, would have had, you'd sort of think, I mean, like I gathered the premise was romantic triangle of Picard, Q and Vash. That was the original, I think even before the Arthurian or the, the Robin Hood pitch, that was the original pitch. So Probably if you were going to do Arthurian, that's what it would have been. Q is Lancelot. Probably would have worked better, but probably they wanted to tie into the sort of uh, unexpected Robin Hood mania. <laughs> I don't want to... Well, well, it's a fair play. I mean, it's a little odd because they're going with much more of an Errol Flynn Robin Hood than a, a Kevin Costner one, but they weren't wrong. The trailer for the Kevin Costner movie created such a buzz it has a the splitting of the arrow that wasn't actually in the movie so the movie makers the trailer was so popular they went in and put a scene in the movie where he splits the arrow and where your your, your camera's on the arrow and <laughs> flying around yeah, yeah. so i mean it, and it became the second highest grossing movie of 1991 and it wasn't the only robin hood movie there was one that in north america just came out on tv on fox just a couple of weeks after this episode aired, I actually think it's the better one with Patrick Bergen as Robin Hood. And there was a third one that was being planned around the same time and it fell by the wayside. But Robin Hood was definitely in the air in the, in the spring of 1991. So understandable that they might want to go there. And I gather Iris Stephen Bear was a huge fan of the Errol Flynn film. I think we we sort of sense it, right? Because, like, uh, full disclosure, I've never seen the Kevin Costner one. I've seen The Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn. I've seen Men in Tights, which is parodying 
that film mostly. And um, I may or may not have seen the the one where he's a fox, the Disney version. <laughs> I may or may not. Yeah. That was a blind spot for me because I think I'm both too old and too young to have got it the right time. 73. So, I, you know, I mean, if I saw it, I, I, I would have been too young to remember it. And... You know, I was already well into my late teens by the time the the real VHS mania began. So I'm not sure when I first saw that one. Yeah, I, I think I remember it most mostly from storybooks, you know, children's storybooks or something, you know, all the pictures. But yeah. have we, have I seen more than just clips on Wonderful World of Disney? Yeah, I don't know. But and then I've seen a lot of pastiches. I, you know, of, of course, I watched Rocket Robin Hood. I'm Canadian, too. So. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so there are two cultures at, at work, probably, you know, Bear's own culture. So his age, what would he have watched? What would he have seen? What would he have been into? And then also the culture of the time, what's right now in our minds. And, and some of this has got to come through the director, probably ideas on set or how things are staged. It's hard to know, you know, necessarily what is in their heads, but I mean, I've got an expert here, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I would say it's the pastiche Robin Hood that if you're doing your own thing, like the Kevin Costner film or, or any of the ones since, say, the 70s onwards, tend to do a little bit of their own thing. So the costumes are a bit different. But if you're doing... Like, say, when Voyager's 1980s sci-fi series did its Robin Hood episode or Time Tunnel from the 60s did their Robin Hood episode, you kind of want the pastiche Robin Hood that everyone recognizes. And that's the Errol Flynn, you know, maybe a bit of the 50s TV show, Disney Fox with the the hat, which is called the Vicocket, the the hat with the feather. And that you, you want something that immediately everyone can recognize the silhouette and say that's Robin Hood because you're using it as a device. Whereas if you're establishing your own version, then you can depart from it, I think, a little more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you don't have a lot of time to set this up. It, it can't be uh, hard to recognize, especially like this episode. And I think maybe that's one of the problems it has for me is that it takes a long time before – Q makes the big transformation. Yeah, 20 minutes before they're in, in, in Sherwood Forest, which is... You know, less than 25 minutes to do Robin Hood, and that's why it's shrunk down to the, you know, the rescue of Maid Marian. And that still gives scenes to, to Vash and whatnot, but, there, you know, if at least there'd been the tournament in it as part of that action. Yeah, I mean, and the tournament's older than the rescue of Maid Marian, because the tournament is there in A Just of Robin Hood, which exists in printed editions from around 1500 and there's a lot of things in it that turn up in even the legend today and the archery contest is one of them whereas Maid Marian isn't really in the medieval legend of Robin Hood she seems to come in through the medieval plays and perhaps through the uh, a French tradition there's an argument if the this French play song from the 1280s Le Jou uh, de Robin et Marian is part of the influence of Maid Marian, but she's not really in the ballads and the rescue of her from the castle. That's a very Ivanhoe like mm -hmm. thing from Sir Walter Scott's 1819. I mean, yeah, it's in the Errol Flynn film. It's in like Voyagers when they did a Robin Hood episode. Part of it, of their plot was rescuing Marian from the castle. It, it's become something. And the problem I have is not even so much that. It's that Q's lesson seems to be women are more trouble than they're worth. <laughs> 
that like that's what he says like i'm going to teach you that you know your heart it's not even like emotions are bad it's falling in love with women she can't be trusted and if you that's a strange message because as picard says you know he would sacrifice himself for anyone and i i expect that were true i expect if it were the vulcan member of the archaeology council i still think picard probably would have gone to the castle to save of course that's part of why this doesn't work you know because if if it were if it were like when this this big romance you know Worf and dax or something you know something like that where the character actually has to break some rules to do it but picard is following the rules throughout there's no so it, it doesn't quite work as a as a concept i wonder what the camelot thing would have been like and if that would have worked well i think it works better in terms of which characters are which characters but let's get into that i expect you to to give me all the the sources that are referenced in each portrayal and moments that, that have to do with those characters so let's do it character by character and you tell me if they were well represented in your opinion so picard as robin hood is Picard really the rebellious sort? It would have been interesting if he had actually become the rebellious sort. Tapestry is a much better episode, and I wouldn't want to step on it, its legs, because if the Errol Flynn Adventures of Robin Hood is my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life is up there in my top five favorite movies, too. And that's kind of the source of tapestry, so I wouldn't want to step on that's toes but yeah if if Picard had learned to be rebellious I mean a lot of these Robin Hood pastiches don't actually have him robbing from the rich because I think it it it's an odd message I mean you could do Robin Hood as a more authoritarian I mean that the idea of King Richard and and the evil Prince John gets grafted onto the legend and then you could have Robin Hood is a servant of a king, which might make a more rule-following Robin Hood that would fit Picard, but they don't really go there. It's a good recreation of the Errol Flynn costume, that, especially the, the one from the first third of the movie or so, that the one with the green tunic. It's, it's a relatively classic representation of it. But yeah, he... Hmm, I don't know. It, I, I feel like this might be like even Captain's Holiday, where I gather that um, Patrick Stewart said something like that he wanted shooting and screwing, I think was his, his directive. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that there's some of that here. I mean, maybe he, he gone off on having the fun sword fights and the, the romance and things because Picard doesn't always get to do that. But they could have done the tension of that better. They could have had Picard breaking rules. They could have explored it. I think even in the time given, they could have explored it a little more centrally, just the paradox of Picard as Robin Hood. Yeah, because they make him sort of a, I don't want to say a loner, but he's benching the merry men. You know, this is this is a problem I created that, you know, it's between me and Q, so let, you know, you guys stay here. And that doesn't feel very Robin hood like well it, it is, is it? in some ways like right even to one of the very earliest robin hood ballads robin and the monk he decides he's going to go pray in nottingham and his men say you're nuts take 12 of your best men with you and he says no he goes off with little john briefly and then he gets into an argument with little john goes off on his own and gets captured and it's up to little john to to rescue him so and even in the the movies there are times when robin sneaks away on his own it, it's as weird especially i think in american ones where they try and pitch him a little more as a loner perhaps because the british ones tend to be more tv series so they're more ensemble with the gang 
than a film might be where it centers on the the lead hero right that kind of passes the test yeah it's just they could have done more just i would say on the outlaw versus the stodgy captain even even something about like he isn't going to break taguin law to go explore the ruins or something i mean they had a bit of that tension there at the beginning I'm not sure why it was there if they weren't going to pay it off, really, in the, the Robin Hood mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That could have been something. Maybe it was. Maybe it was an orphan from a an earlier script. But in terms of action, there's a disguise when he sneaks into the castle, yeah. the fencing. The, and that's all, like, the disguise is there from the, the ballad. Even the fencing is from some of the early ballads. But it's very much the Errol Flynn on the staircase with uh, Basil Rathbone's Guy of Gisborne. And they actually have a wonderful sort of callback to two things. In the Errol Flynn film, Guy says, like, you know, you've come to Nottingham once too often. And Robin says, you know, after this is done, my friend, there'll be no need for me to come again. And Prince's Bride, which also, like many films, kind of homages that fight scene from the 1938 Errol Flynn movie, they have a, there's something you should know, I'm not left-handed. And it turns out, like, both Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Elwes characters were feigning being left-handed in their sword fights, and they, they switch. And so it, it, that kind of banter, when Picard says there's something you should know, I'm not from Nottingham, in response to Guy being the best sword fighter in Nottingham, is that uh, the Robin Hood legend, when it came up, there are a lot of different locations for where it is. And while the Sheriff of Nottingham and, and Nottingham are mentioned right from day one, the forest isn't always Sherwood. Sometimes it's Barnsdale in Yorkshire, and there are a lot of locations, names that come from Yorkshire, like Robin of Loxley. Well, Loxley is part of modern-day Sheffield in Yorkshire, and Robin Hood is supposed to have died at Kirkwood's Priory in Yorkshire, and two and a half miles away from Kirkwood's Priory in Robin Hood's grave is Muirfield in Yorkshire, which is the birthplace of Patrick oh. Stewart. So he is right. He's not from Nottingham. He is actually from the Yorkshire and and closer, in a sense, to the heart of Robin Hood territory than one feels that maybe Patrick Stewart is to Lavar France. I'm going to call that an accidental reference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's accidental, but it's a, a fun yeah. coincidence. Like of all the, the places, like just two and a half miles from Robin Hood's grave, but not in Nottingham. I just wish they had done more with his attitude. But Speaking of paying homage to Adventures of Robin Hood in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Patrick Stewart is in that, isn't he? He plays King Richard. Yeah. So He plays like Sean Connery yeah. from Prince of Thieves coming in at the, the end. So he would dabble in, in Robin Hood again. Yeah. Okay, let's look at Vash as Maid Marian. Sly Trickster who plays along, refuses the rescue. It's interesting because it seems to imply that Vash is not following the script. That she is not following the Maid Marian playbook, except I think that undersells Marian. I mean, Marian is a, a complicated character, but even, say, the Olivia de Havilland Marian, Errol Flynn's Maid Marian, is pretty self-assured. I mean, she speaks her mind. Like, Guy is interested in her in the 1938 film. He's not as romantically interested or as some other versions and she kind of puts it off like she says like maybe when i know him better (laughs) prince john accepts that like you're a very wise woman that the olivia de Havilland, even though she's not like some maid marians that sword fight and archery skills and that goes back 
by the way, to the one ballad that has Marion in it where she sword fights Robin for an hour and basically he galls it off because he's on the verge of losing. So there are some very tough Marions. Olivia de Havilland's not like that, but she's emotionally tough. So I feel like this sort of implies that Marion is a, a shrinking violet and that Vosh is not following that script. And I feel that's a little off. I mean, they, they also extends the, um, the lady in waiting that she has, the servant, which is a callback to the Errol Flynn film and just a wonderful supporting part played by Uno O'Connor, who, if anyone on Twitter ever follows Turner Classic Movies, she's like the patron saint, I think, of Turner Classic Movies in when they have a TCM party discussion about those films and Uno O'Connor shows up. This fun character speaks her mind as Marion's lady-in-waiting. And here, this one is very much more compliant. You know, it feels like the, you know, the, the other lady in waiting is from the Disney cartoon Lady Cluck. And she does a football tackle of the guards that both Marion and her lady in other depictions are stronger than what they would be here. If you assume that Vosh is not following the script. You know, I, I'd been doing some reading accidental reading, really, that connects to this, where I found references to Maid Marian. Like, why is she called Maid Marian? And there was, like, some references to some version saying that she um, that she was a merry man, that she, like you said, she was competent with a sword, etc., that she forbade Robin to have sex with her. She was a maid because she, like, enforced yeah, sort of <laughs> that kind of attitude. Once their kingdom is restored or whatever... Then we can marry. Then, they, but uh, until then, I will remain chaste. I don't know if if this is any of this is true. I just I... it's true on some versions, like anything that it's certainly there. That the idea, for example, that her wedding to to Robin Hood is outlawed, uh, is interrupted. Sorry, when he's outlawed, that they come in and stop the wedding, and then it sort of becomes until we can get married. I mean, there's a play around the 1600s where that happens, and then a, a novel in 1822 where that sort of is an element of the, the theme. It's there. I mean, it, it, Marion's been so many things. There's one argument that she started in the May game tradition as kind of a more loose woman or a, even a, a, a man in drag player. The, there's a sort of drag act element to Marion. So she's been a lot of things. And the trick of Vosh turning Robin Hood in or agreeing to marry, you know, the villain, that actually happens in a, a recent novel where Marion just politically says, this is the best thing to get what we want done would be for me to go through with this. It doesn't actually end up happening for various reasons. But, you know, I mean, the, the legend is very flexible, but it just again, it feels it feels odd because Vash speaking your mind and Vash being independent and Vash being smart is against the script. That's her not following Q's script, not following expectations, which implies that the Robin Hood legend that people know in the 24th century is something that would have already felt dated in 1991. Which is very strange. Yeah. I had like vibes of the later Doctor Who pastiche that we talked about on uh, Straight Out of Gallifrey together some time ago. Clara's role in that is similar to what Vash is doing here. The the character that is way ahead of this time 
and sort of reflecting on it and using the tropes against the villain. And in that one, yeah, Marion is the real Marion is just this very minor cameo and very weak. And Clara does step into again, again, not following the script, so to speak. That's kind of regrettable. Um, for Marion. Yeah. I mean, Marion often comes, not the whole like, yeah, I'll marry you guy. Like what you see to some extent in the Errol Flynn film and the 1950s show is she is, if they don't always have her as the fighter, she is the spy. She is the one who not outright I'll marry you, but will navigate the villains enough to gather information and carry it on to the, the merry man. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the villains because I think they have a bigger role to play than the merry men we'll get to them q as the sheriff of course it's q so he's a bit of a the indolent observer he's making sure the executions go ahead and he ends up with the girl at the end so <laughs> let's talk about this <laughs> well i mean I, you know it, it's not the first time that people might have been rooting for the villain <laughs> or the last <laughs> i think in 1991 a lot of people rooted for the sheriff uh when alan rickman apparently got the script for um prince of thieves he thought it was terrible he met a couple of friends in a pizza hut in uh london and rewrote the script to be wittier and funnier for him i feel q is a bit of that like the the sheriff is one of those characters if robin hood is sometimes the trickster when he's not then the sheriff is a trickster and that that works for q Uh, it's not the errol flynn sheriff because the errol flynn sheriff is played by melville cooper and he is overweight and he's the sort of comic relief third banana of the bad guys because claude rains prince john is the the sly funny witty schemer the sir guy is basil rathbone's more of the stick up the butt really good fighter and then the sheriff is the goofball this is more like the sheriff that you would get in the 1950s tv series played by alan wheatley or um in Robin Sherwood by Nicholas Grace or Prince of Thieves with um, Alan Rickman and Man Tights with Roger Rees, that more political sheriff, smarter sheriff and the, the goatee and things that that's very much like that sheriff, the hat and the chain, which were sort of medieval symbols of office. And they come in various illustrations. So he looks like he's stepped out of the Louis Reed illustration from, I think like 1912 or whatever, that the look of Q is like that. His, his personality is like that, but oddly, he is not in charge of the scenario. Guy is the one who is um, proceeding with the execution and giving the orders, and he threatens to kill the sheriff. And uh, the sheriff is historically like the head of the county in a sense of the laws of the county and the tax collection things. By the way, the sheriff of Nottingham, the town or later city of Nottingham, didn't have a sheriff until the 1440s it was actually the sheriff of nottinghamshire and the neighboring derbyshire and they should be the ones enforcing the law but here it feels like sir guy is which is uh, kind of throwing back to errol flynn yeah and, and in the story itself q is just letting these his puppet do something i was kind of disappointed that i mean q does look the part you send me pictures and it's like okay yeah just you know this costume specifically yeah Yeah. and henry pollock the second from uh when things were rotten which was mel brooks's first attempt at robin hood in 1975 and he was 
a scenery chewing sheriff. Literally, sometimes he'd get so angry, they'd be like, sir, you're not speaking words. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be just growling, essentially. It's very classic look, and he has a few lines. Like, you know, Mr. Worf, you'd make a perfect throw rug in Nottingham Castle. I can think of many sheriffs of Nottingham who would have said something similar to that. But if I say I'm, I'm disappointed with Sir Guy himself, it's not the performance or anything. And this is an actor who has some background with Robin Hood as well. But the fact that it's he's not anyone. Everybody else is recognizably another Star Trek character. But I don't know who he who it would have been. Maybe they would have had to introduce someone, an antagonistic person in the council or something earlier on, but the fact that this is truly Q's puppet, you know, a character created out of whole cloth. So I was like, okay, this, this sort of jars, like, could we just have had just the one villain, Q as Prince John, or okay, the, the sheriff, you know, Vash would have had to play those scenes with Q instead, which, I don't know. What did you think of this? No, and I think you're right, but then again, like, who would you get? Because the immediate thing I picture is, like, that one Ferengi... <laughs> Villain, a couple of the Frankie villains that Picard has had. You know, I can't really see them stepping in as Sir Guy. I can't. I could picture like who who might show up if it were Kirk anywhere in this situation, or if it were Cisco, it would probably be Gal Dukat as as Sir Guy. But yeah, I can't imagine. I understand why they probably didn't have a sort of 24th century counterpart. Is there really isn't one in the way Star Trek is structured. It would have had to be someone who was brainwashed into thinking they were Sir Guy, but yeah, we recognize I mean, the actor as, oh no, they went and picked up you know, Barkley or something. You know? uh, so I was about to say that Dwight Schultz is Sir Guy, which would have been entertaining. Yeah, Clive Revel, who is the uh, original voice of the Emperor in, in The Empire Strikes Back until they, they retconned him away and the original voice of Alfred in Batman the Animated Series for like three episodes before he left. Yeah, he played a minor role in a 1950s episode of um, The Adventures of Robin Hood that was written by blacklisted American writers. And so he's very minor in that. And then he's later King Richard when Tom and Jerry meet Robin Hood many, many years after this. So, I mean, he's not a bad sort of guy if you want someone who has a commanding presence and that kind of voice. But yeah, it does feel like a kind of a missed opportunity. But Picard appears to kill him, by the way. Yeah. I mean, Picard and Geordi both run swords through people and they don't seem to be concerned. I assume that they're treating it like it's a holodeck adventure, that, that these aren't like, that, that they aren't in the 12th century, that they aren't in actually Sherwood Forest. They figure it's all right to kill. And that Q isn't transporting people and, and putting them in a, you know, that they are fake Q constructions. And it's never established that's the case, which is... I would imagine that they're going off past adventures and that Q can make things appear and those things. In this adventure, they probably think everybody's acting according to a script. They can't be real. It's fine. <laughs> So is this a, a Sir Guy that is recognizable from the stories? Yeah, I mean, it's, he, he's fatter than Basil Rathbone, but is Guy goes in different things. He's, he's in a sort of medieval valet with an asterisk because the actual physical copy is from later, but historians believe that the content and other references that it probably was a medieval valet. And he, in that one, he's a bounty hunter. 
that the sheriff hires to kill Robin Hood and Robin kills him. Later versions of it, uh, of the legend, have kind of made him the sheriff's lackey sometimes. But the some of the early movies, like the Errol Flynn movie and before it, the Douglas Fairbanks movie, Guy has the more senior role and seems to be more in charge of things and is a rival for Mary. And so it's a fair use, especially if you're going with the Errol Flynn or I should say Basil Rathbone, in case of the of the actor playing Sir Guy, template, it's, it's a relatively fair representation of that. Let's get into the Merry Men. I guess number one is Riker as Little John. Tallest in the cast, Picard's right arm, that, that would have seemed a, an easy transposition. Yeah, very tall and with a beard as most of the actors playing Little John have had. The grave for Little John in Hathersage, Derbyshire, calls him Robin Hood's friend and lieutenant he is often the number two person in robin hood's band and in some of the medieval ballads a little smarter than he is in some of the later depictions i mean that and tall yeah it's fair that yeah the the obvious casting would be riker's little john especially because jonathan frakes looks the part right and that's if we recognize that the original tales, you know, what what was the level of irony accessible to medieval readers, writers? Little John could have been small, right? Or or is the text always saying that he's actually tall? The original text, I don't think, says one way or the other. But the whole John Little, a.k.a. Little John, that comes from a ballad that's from around the 17th century that has the quarterstaff duel where they first meet it. And there it says he's like seven feet tall. Okay. And it calls out the irony of John Little for, for such a tallman. Okay. And the fact that Picard says, or should I say John Little? I mean, he knows the legend enough to know that detail, that they reversed Little John's name from his real name. Right. Well, Picard is a Renaissance man. He's interested in history. He's interested in fiction. Crusher knows it, too. I mean, she picks up on that. So clearly they have some degree of knowledge in the 24th century. But then Kirk references it in Sitting on the Edge of Forever when they're stealing the clothes. And Spock objects. He says, well, uh, we'll rob from the rich and give to the poor. Um later. It's been centuries from our perspective, and we haven't yeah. lost sight of this legend. So what's another 300 years? Yeah, I mean, 1377 is the first clear literary reference, and it, it was obviously the kind that you would make, a, say, a reference to James Bond movies today, where you'd expect everyone to get it, or Star Trek, everyone would get it. <laughs> the Star Trek itself, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Data as Friar Tuck. What is the point of making Data Friar Tuck? Is this a chaste character normally? Is he the brains of the group? I don't know if Data's a bon vivant, but that's what I get from Friar Tuck usually. Is Tuck a magician in certain iterations? Because like yeah. the exploding circuit and Data has all these abilities? Yeah, I, I think it has to be, if anything. It's that Tuck, as a clergyman, is literate and, um, you know, has knowledge. But... It seems odd because, yeah, Tuck is usually the one that's drunk or always eating or, you know, characteristics that you don't associate with Data. And he is sometimes the funny one or the anarchist. Like, there's a tension between Tuck being religious and the figure who eats and drinks and and sometimes is even slightly uh, inappropriate with ladies. I mean, the, the one play, Robin Hood and the Friar, they do bring on a lady 
free at the end for Tuck to dance with. So that that's not very data, but I'm thinking they're thinking that the churchly learning and data's encyclopedic recall. That's where I feel they must be getting it. And I think they, the, the little circuitry to create the fire, I mean, in Time Tunnel, they invent gunpowder. <laughs> yeah. The one character in Prince of Thieves does it, too. Morgan Freeman's character, Azim, invents gunpowder in Prince of Thieves. It, it feels like a sort of Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court in the Mark Twain book sort of stunt. Right. Also, when he first appears, he's holding up, I think that's a ham hock he's appearing. It's some piece of meat in his hand. And that's from, I think it's from When Things Were Rotten, where uh, Dick Van Patten's Friar Tuck seems to always pull out like he's, he's got a piece of meat stashed somewhere in his person. And the opening credits scene, he like when he unfolds his arms, he's holding a piece of meat like that. That's like deep cut, I feel. <laughs> it, but I've seen the picture. You sent me the picture and I went, OK, no, it's it's on purpose. This seems to be either a Cliff Bowl touch because that part of the direction or it was in the script and as a reference. But it's a very deep cut. But <laughs> amusing. So I thought, okay, well, yeah, maybe there's more to this Cupid than I thought when you showed me that. Because, okay, there's more thought to it than I originally imagined. But I think when things are rotten, much like episodes like Cupid, they're all dealing with the sort of parodic version of Robin Hood and the Merry Men. So if you're reducing it down to Tuck likes to eat, him stashing food on his person is the really visual shorthand to that concept. I, it's also the moment where the the rest, like the assembly, like <laughs> nobody's noticing that these things are happening. It's always a little bit with odd with the Q stuff. We hear a flash. It goes, Shh, you know, there's light. And Picard is speaking to an audience. And at the back of the audience, there's these flashes of light that make the, the sound. Shh, and it's he's not stopping. And I'm like, how does this really work that he's not noticing and nobody's noticing? But then when the meat comes out, probably there's a smell associated. Mm. I don't know. But then somebody, then they, they kind of stop and, and look back at that moment. Well, you, you've presented at academic conferences, haven't you? Where you're all in your own head and you're just struggling to get through the test. Yeah, the lights are in your eyes. You're not, but still. You it, know, it, like... <laughs> wait, wait a minute. I've got half of my paper to go. It's a 20 minute paper and I'm at minute 15. What do I do? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> okay, no prize. I noticed, by the way, when they had the long shot that Worf is wearing the sort of shoulder cowl of Will Scarlet and Jordy is holding the mandolin, but he's not yet in the costume. So they had those partial transformations for everyone. You just don't see them in close up. I want to talk about Crusher and Troy. I think they've got bigger roles than uh, Jordy and Worf, even though they're just, what are they, generic merry men? Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, Could they have been more specific? Like, who else is in this group? On the stage productions in the 1700s and the 1800s, and even up until, you know, the 20th century now, Alan the Dale is often played by a woman in um, man's clothes. I mean, they could have made Crusher Troy Allenadale. Geordi is not musical, so they could have reassigned one of the names. I mean, there's other names hanging around. Much the Miller's Much, son yeah. is the one that's in the early ballads. It's also in a fair number of the movies. So if they, they want a name lying around, there are a handful. But I expect they're not as known to the average audience. I mean, I think they got the names that people would know and stop right at the last name that people would have heard of, the average viewer might know. I would say Alan the Dale would have been the obvious one to maybe make either 
Crusher, Troy, maybe maybe Crusher because she's the, the dancing doctor. The dancing doctor, yeah. Yeah, so there's more of a musical element to Crusher. And just also that they, I mean, clearly no one took Tuvok's archery class in uh, Starfleet Academy. <laughs> <laughs> no one's, yeah, no one's really using those, especially those two characters who cannot, they were forbidden to use swords by the director. Yeah. Even though, ironically... Marina Sirtis and Gates McFadden were the only members of the cast actually trained in sword fighting. They didn't need any extra training. They were already good at stage fighting with those weapons, with foils. <laughs> there, there's a gag in the, the Errol Flynn film like that much kind of hangs from the rafters and, and clobbers guards with a table he throws at them or he lifts up their helmets and conks them on the head with a mace. I feel like the pot gag is kind of a variation of that but you know much is like one guy out of many whereas these are the only two women in the cast now would they have done that if tasha yar had still been here i hope not i mean i I really hope if tasha had still been in the cast they wouldn't have uh, restricted her to pot i do like the attitudes but that they're different because they're essentially yes they're generic they're they're mostly themselves because we can't really point to a, a specific character but you you said earlier that crusher knows the robin hood stories like she has you know she has more ability to to reference it and when she's doing that when she pots a guy she's she's giggling she's having fun with it Whereas Troy, who is an alien to our culture, like she smashes the pot and, uh, you know, she's she's in a panic mode and she's not liking it. It's the sort of comedy, like, did I get him? Is is this right? Yeah. I wonder if Q misdirected her arrow because I can see you not hitting the target. I can see you not hitting the tree, but I can't see you shooting someone at, what is it, like a 45-degree angle? And, you know, like the way she hits Data, like he's way off to the side. It's not even like he's, in you know, to the side of the target. He's like literally off to the side in a way that to shoot him is so... I don't know. That's another thing, like, that it just feels disturbingly sexist along with it. And it, right. it didn't need to be. The, like, the Robin Hood legend reflects the times it's written so often it is sexist because the times that they're written in are sexist but that feels more so than a lot of robin hoods are even even the sort of iconic you know hat wearing robin hoods are not quite that sexist and there is a point to be made that he's like who is in the band he's in exile he's an outlaw and then he's picking up the dregs you know, people who are also outside of society to be part of this group. And then you can say, well, you know, like the, there's the big lummox. He's, he stands out. The monk who is also sinful. He's probably ostracized. Yeah. From his, you know, but, it's, it, so women might well have been part of this group. Well. Uh, he might have other people who were kind of outside the culture that way as a a friend of mine's written on this and she said like that the medieval term for outline women was to call them waved rather than outlawed like w-a-i-v-e-d or waved wenches and um, okay and so yeah there you could have done that anna burke uh wrote a novel in the last couple years called nottingham where pretty much the entire merry men are women in fact they're mostly lesbian or bisexual women 
aside from Little John, who is a trans man. But even I feel like with the actors in the stage productions of Robin Hood are often women playing men. You could have made one of Crusher, Troy, one of the name Merry Men. And I would say Alan the Dale is the most obvious one to do that with. And Jordy gets that role. Yeah. Like you said, not a good musician. Yeah, I mean. He gets, he gets uh, animal housed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you look at Riker plays the trombone, O'Brien plays the cello, Data plays the violin, Crusher is a dancer and has some kind of musical training, Picard later in a couple of seasons down the road plays the flute or the recorder. Like, Jordy, I don't think of from music, other than when he's trying to figure out should he call up the music of Brahms to seduce Leia Brahms. I mean, he's not who I think of from music. It's, it's very odd that they do it. I understand like why they have Alan Adele there because it's a very famous name. It's, again, a later addition to the legend, the ballad where the Robin Hood rescues Alan's um, bride-to-be from basically a guy of Gisborne-like figure, an unwanted marriage is a very popular legend. And Alan Adele showed up in a lot of the plays and later story novels, and, and though not the Errol Flynn film. In the Errol Flynn film, he's not there, and it's Will Scarlet who has the musical instrument. But Alan Adele's very, very common, and he's often kind of the entry point to the story. Like in the 50s movie from Disney, he sings, introduces Roger Miller as the rooster in the Disney film is kind of the entry point. Well, let me tell you the story. Right. So understandable that they use the character. But yeah, I think it shouldn't have been Jordy. I think Jordy should have been generic outlaw B and Crusher probably should have been Alan Adele. Well, it, it does supply the gag where he's plucking at the mandolin. It's not good. And Worf you know, smashes it. Which, as you said, is is their callback to Animal House and John Belushi smashing the guitar. Right, exactly. Which, I mean, Worf is funny. I mean, War, Worf's sort of... Arguably the best part of this yeah. is Worf. I'm always saying, I am not a merry man. I'm always <laughs> saying that in situations that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that call for it. Uh, he's Will Scarlet. Is that a good fit for him? Yeah, I, I, I it, don't really know Will Scarlet that much. It's a great fit in a couple of ways. That there is an outlaw with a name that begins with S-C-A in most of the ballads, or, or the early ballads, and, and certainly a lot of them. It seems to change what it is. Like Will Scathlock, Will Scarlock, Will Scarlet. It depends on which ballad you read that, that they seem to shift. And sometimes in, in later versions, they actually have like three characters with like there's Scathlock, Stutley, and Scarlet all as separate characters. So, but it's essentially that the, the original name Scarlock or Scathlock meant lockbreaker. So very violent figure. Mm. And he does argue with Robin Hood in the Ballad of Robin Hood's death. And Ray Winstone in Robin of Sherwood. I mean, if you know Ray Winstone from any of his later movies, you know, that sort of tough guy thing. That's his Will Scarlet is angry and violent. Like he is the wharf of that TV series. So you've got that. On the other hand, you have in some of the later ballads, Will Scarlet, who's sometimes Robin Hood's nephew or cousin, dresses in silk and finery and uh, is a bit of a dandy. By putting Worf in the red costume, you kind of do both. You have the dandy-like costume, but then it's Worf's personality. So it's I, I don't know if that was intentional. I think they're just going for the laughs of like, 
put Worf in the most ridiculous costume, which would be the red of Will Scarlet's and then have him be Worf. Uh, and just that wonderful line of I protest, I am not a merry man. Brilliant. But there is actually perhaps an unintentional brilliance that references both sides of Will Scarlet's nature. We see him that he's like first to fight, the one that jumps into the action, sword swinging, all of that. So Worf is Worf. Yeah. But I'm I'm glad to hear that uh, Will Scarlet in many iterations is actually also a fighter in that way. Yeah. Or he's a dandy. And so, like I said, doing both here. Yeah. That's, I mean, other than the obvious little John, that's actually probably the most effective casting. I mean, the red costume, Klingons, that's the color of the Klingons. Yeah. So that might have gone into it as well. I think when you get to like Will Scarlet and Alan the Dale, they're like the last names that the average person might know. And even then, sir, I must protest. I'm not a merry man. That is the line that I always hear quoted from this episode without fail. Yeah. And then the smashing of the mandolin. I mean, Worf gets the best bits and the most memeable bits of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, here's my big question then at the end of all this. Because Data as Sherlock Holmes made sense because he's a character with the same kind of genius but social awkwardness. You know, we talk about Janeway and Voyager's story uh, and its similarities to Jane Eyre in an earlier episode of this show. Same kind of question in the end, does this episode, its plot and its themes, and I know we've been a bit harsh on them, do they have a tangible Robin Hoodness? Is there something in Star Trek TNG that relates to the Robin Hood myth that this makes a good fit? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's hard because in a way, Picard is so... You you could have made it fit. Like I said, I think it actually works better, the tension of it, that Picard is not Robin Hood, I think, or that it's the buried secret Robin Hood, that the, the Robin Hood in Picard is the part of Picard that loves Dixon Hill novels because there's... There is a contradiction in that, right? Sure. Like, yeah. I mean, Shakespeare and Picard, you see where that yes. goes. Picard in the Dixon Hill novels, I feel like you could say that there is an element of him that is not the cliched Picard, and that would be very Robin Hood-like. But they don't really go there as much as they should. Well, I think you said something interesting, because I don't personally see it, you know, Star Trek is a world with no money, for one thing. So all the, you you know, stealing from the rich, et cetera, is not a thing. They're protecting the status quo. What you said that was interesting here is that Q specifically, and this helps explain some of the other character attributions. What if Q decided, I'm going to put all these people in the wrong role? You know, it's part of a test. It's part of a prank. It's trolling. Picard is so not like Robin Hood, I'm going to force him to be Robin Hood and see where that leads. Vash is not the Maid Marian that we expect. Worf is not comfortable as a merry man at all. The mandolin, you know, that doesn't fit Geordi. Data is Friar Tuck, but also lacks the sinful nature of Friar Tuck. So what if I put all these characters in the wrong role because I'm pranking them, because I'm laughing at them? Uh, Yeah, that makes sense. Aside from Riker, who's, you know, after the beard is just too stodgy. Kind of works with the, we can't use bows very well. We we don't know, you know, we have to discuss what this is because we don't all know the legend. So maybe, maybe that's a better way to look at it. You know, there are people I saw online who question the fact that Worf seems to know the legend enough to say... I am not a merry man. Like that, that is, he is the one I think who first says it, but he was raised exactly. by the, the Rojankos. I mean, they probably had a Robin Hood storybook somewhere. He would know it more than Troy. 
because Troy has a human father, but she was essentially raised on Beta Z. So she's the one that seems a little bit more like, oh, what's going on? And she may also be the one in a cut scene that we don't see who says, I'm not getting any emotional context from these people. And that's why they're fake. So we were looking for a no prize on that one. Oh, yeah, hey, you're right, probably. I- I'm glad we had this conversation because it sort of redeemed the episode a little bit for me in many ways. Yeah, yeah I-, I like it more. It's just a middling line. It's not horrible. It's not bad. It's a fun way to while away 45 minutes. I've seen worse takes and I've seen better takes. I mean, I think that, say, the Doctor Who one has a little more sly commentary. I I love still the crack it makes about the whole idea that the Robin Hood legend is the safety valve. To maintain order in society, you give the people a trickster hero so they don't actually rebel. I think that's something that's smarter than anything you see in Cupid. Yeah. And and calling out that, oh, wait a minute, that theory actually makes no sense. If people are interested, go to the Right On Network, W-R-I-G-H-T, the episode Robot of Sherwood. Both Alan and I are on that with Ashford. And uh, we discussed that in depth, in depth. Uh, well worth listening to. Remind people where they can find you on these internets, what you're working on now. Yeah, they can find me at uh, boldoutlaw.com and also bold outlaw on twitter i am still working behind the scenes on my website i'm going to upload soonish a section on green arrow that i've been working on for quite a while and his robin hood connections updating sort of the literary history of robin hood right now as well that should be uploaded uh working on a couple podcasts that aren't as near completion as i thought they would be but uh hopefully in the future and i am doing straight out of the Federation uh, with Ashford, uh, or AJ as he goes by there, which is a Blake 7 podcast, which is kind of Doctor Who meets Star Trek meets Robin Hood. And in that British science fiction of the 1970s and early 80s, the Federation is an evil dictatorship, and you're looking at some rebel heroes who are fighting against it, who are maybe not as pure as the merry men are always portrayed so that's a <laughs> that, that's a fun thing straight out of the federation also on the right on network excellent uh well thanks alan w right thank you q's here to bring you back to the real world i can't go because i have to stick <laughs> around for subspace transmissions your feedback on our previous episode thanks again thanks imagine a state where reality is a dangerous concept where every aspect of public and private life is strictly controlled where the voice of the state is the only voice and the only limits are that of the imagination. And even that is gone. Imagine a state where memories are wiped away, leaving only traces of the past, where the final frontier of space becomes a weightless freezing vacuum, except for what is useful to the state. A great intergalactic state of hundreds of planets that stretches across the universe called the Federation. And imagine all that stands in the way of total conquest is a tiny band of thieves, smugglers, embezzlers, murderers, and rebel rousers. Are they criminals or liberators? Reality is a dangerous concept, but everyone interprets it in a slightly different way in Blake 7. Welcome everyone to Straight Out of the Federation. Blake7.Lipson.com
Incoming subspace transmissions. Uh, these are comments about episode 55, where Mike Lacroix and I talked about promotions, career uh, management in the military, and how that relates to the way it is pictured in Star Trek. Darko here asks, what happens if you transfer responsibility for a temporary time? Are you responsible for your replacement's actions? And uh, Mike Lacroix very kindly came in to... Uh, to give this extra detail, he says, If I step away from my duties, I will place it in writing. Who will command in my place? At that time, the person in my role has the authority and accountability of my role. At the same time, I am personally responsible for naming that person to my role in my absence. So if the person I put there commits some type of misconduct or disobeys uh, my boss, they will receive the consequences, but my boss will not be very happy that I put them into my spot. So big picture, yes, I would be responsible. Chris Franklin says, interesting discussion. All this talk of promotion, rank, and career really does point toward Starfleet being military, which of course is something Gene Roddenberry rallied against beginning with Star Trek II, as discussed in the Film and Water Wrath of Khan commentary episode, which I will point you to. I think Gene's humanistic tendencies made him rewrite his own franchise to a point, and a lot of it was just an excuse to argue a point to try and regain some influence over the series, which was essentially frozen out of after the tepid reaction to the motion picture. I agree that Kelvin Kirk's ascendancy to captain is the biggest sticking point with that timeline. It just doesn't make any sense, no matter how you look at it. I think it's one reason I like Beyond so much, because it had been enough years, and Kirk, questioning where his career was going, papered over his ridiculous promotion by mentioning his accomplishments since. It still doesn't fix how he got there, but at least we know he retroactively earned it. It also doesn't hurt that he's overall more classic Kirk-like in that film. Closer to the age as well. Rob McCarthy makes the point that Calvin Kirk makes no real sense, but it's a damaged timeline trying to right itself somehow. Somewhere in the Marvel multiverse, there's an Earth where the Battle of Hastings ended differently and changed the entire English language, but you can bet Wolverine uh, will still join something called the X-Men. So I guess that all comes down to whether fate exists in the Star Trek universe. And given the way that 2009 reboot uh, <laughs> made everybody get back together or the way the mirror universe works, you could say, you could argue that point easily. Michael Kramer says, my question is, what about Dax as a Trill symbiont? Dax has done time served XYZ amount of times, even if the host hasn't. So this is a science fiction thing that naturally has no parallels in existing military. So uh, that's why we didn't discuss it. But the lore says symbionts have to abandon their past lives. Lives. It's true of past spouses, though it doesn't seem to stop Dax from staying friends with Cisco. Perhaps she justifies this as something of a new friendship. She's not going out to seek Cisco out. They just, you know, they happen to be assigned together. So rank doesn't seem to carry over. Upgrading Ezri based on her symbiont's established uh, role would seem to contradict that. But it could also be a promotion that works for her new post. Station personnel now go to a lieutenant and not a lowly ensign. You know, she was just a counselor in training when she got the symbiont. So, of course, Ezri does try to renew her relationship with Worf. So the Dax symbiont is it's a bit cavalier about the cultural taboo. See also Blood Oath. Like, how does Blood Oath, you know, fit into the, you, you know, cut off all ties? The Star Trek itself is not particularly consistent with this. David here says, um, also remember Ezri wasn't trained to receive a symbiont. So she was thrust into joining. Maybe she doesn't know all the rules. Captain Entropy 
Uh, here says, Major Mike Lacroix has been a superb guest every time he's been on. As a veteran, I relish his episodes, and I'm glad to have someone as knowledgeable, thoughtful, and articulate as he is representing our community. For Commodore, it's weird and confusing for everyone. I only ever worked with one former Commodore, not Lionel Richie, uh, and he was an admiral by the time I was under his command on a joint deployment. According to Wikipedia, for us Yanks, today... It is no longer a specific rank within active duty or reserve ranks, but it continues to be used as an honorary title within the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard for those senior captains, pay grade 06, in command of operational organizations composed of multiple independent subordinate naval units, e.g. multiple independent ships or aviation squadrons. Regarding streamer, we say fast burner for someone who makes rank quickly, or at least we used to, I'm old. Regarding promotion and assignment systems in general in the States, every service is a little different and procedures change over time, as I'm sure they do in Canada. I know based on a friend's experience that the Army is allowing both the assignee and the receiving unit more say in the process. It's still an arranged marriage, but each side has a few options. The other services may be doing the same. I think this is a trend in, uh, you know, at least in the Western world in terms of the military. Paul Kien says, I have found these episodes with Major Mike on them to be fascinating as I know very little about the military, so thank you for having him. And just to put my two cents in, even I knew that Kelvin Kirk shouldn't have been captain. But like many things in Star Trek, I enjoy so many other things about that that I was willing to overlook it. I also was confused at the absorption of the Bajoran militia into Starfleet, even when it happened at the end of DS9. Don't independent Federation worlds have their own services? Is Starfleet the only brand of military in the Federation. So in comes Mike Lacroix again to answer Paul. He says the best and most recent example that I can come up with is the current Royal Newfoundland Regiment in the Canadian Army. The Royal Newfoundland Regiment of foot was raised as a militia in 1795. The regiment fought in the War of 1812, the First World War, and the Second World War as a recruit force for the British Army, a very simplified version of their esteemed history. When Newfoundland joined Canada in 1949, the Royal Newfoundland Regiment was absorbed into the Canadian Army as part of the Royal Canadian Infantry Corps and falling in as part of the primary reserve component. They retained their officers and soldiers, adopted Canadian Army uniforms and maintained their history, customs and traditions. When the proper time came, they retired their Queen's Colour with the Royal Union flag base and were presented their new Queen's Colour based on the Canadian flag. So we might imagine that in a few years, a few decades even perhaps, the Bajoran militia would have become totally Starfleet if it follows this same scheme. And on that note, I have to mention the Fire & Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page. So if you like our content, please think about making a one-time or monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list, like Doug Van Diver, who I have unfortunately run out of ranks to give. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. As usual, let me remind you that you two can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on the Fire & Water Facebook page. On Twitter, we are FWPodcast. Yes. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs>